heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it what kind of tape a tape a regular tape people run it i don't know you start to play it and it's like somebody's nightmare then suddenly this woman comes on smiling at you right seeing you through the screen and as soon as it's over your phone rings someone knows you've watched it and what they say is, you will die in seven days. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? You know, violently. I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. The following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. All right, lurkers. I got a few questions for you, all right? So number one, if there was a scary Halloween dessert that kept coming back, what would you call it? A boomerang. No? All right, next one. Where does Dracula keep all his valuables? I need you to think about this for a minute, all right? You know where he keeps them? In the blood bank. No? That was bad, too, eh? Shit. Oh, for 2. All right. Why don't ghosts take the stairs but use elevators instead? You're going to like this because it raises their spirits. Fuck you. I know you were laughing at that one. Why can't mummies make friends? Well, probably because they're too wrapped up in themselves. All right, yeah, I heard the groans on that one. But I will tell you, though, right now I'm reading a horror story, but I'm reading it in Braille. Something bad is going to happen, though. I can just feel it. Okay, final one. Then I'll stop your suffering. What's Gollum's favorite horror movie? The Ring. And on that note, from the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero, whatever you do, don't watch the tape. Welcome back, everyone, to What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero. And I'm your host, Postmortem Paul. I thought I would try something new for the intro of this show, you know, instead of doing some, like, old man rant where I'm bitching about, you know young kids and those damn whippersnappers and shit no but <laughs> i thought i would try something different and i'm pretty sure that if i did this live on a stage i'd be getting tomatoes and skulls thrown at my head but hey it is what it is 
Welcome back, everyone, to episode 123. And yeah, I pretty much already announced the movie of the week. It's Gollum's favorite horror movie, yes, from 2002, The Ring. Alright, but before we get into that, I've been kind of on a movie splurge. I'm kind of watching a lot of shit lately. Uh, Fangoria Chainsaw Awards kind of helped along with that as well, because... Certain movies that were coming up and nominations and whatnot where I was like, oh shit, got to check that one off the list and stuff like that. So things happen. But anyways, even before that, uh, we had Friday the 13th happened. Uh, happy Friday the 13th, belated to all of you who look at that as sort of like the beginning of the preseason to Halloween. Um, I know I do. <laughs> I, had a, I had a few comments coming at me. Like uh, One of my friends was like, I thought your preseason to Halloween was November 1st. I'm like, no, no, no. That's the preseason to the Yuletide Halloween where we get like Christmas with horror, you know. Um, and then for a while there we go into a down period where I mean like, yeah, we get Valent Valentine's horror. We get St. Patrick's horror. We, you know, Easter horror and stuff like that. But I mean, those are kind of like the minor ones. Like, well, my bloody Valentine's pretty, pretty epic. <laughs> it's it's up there. But I mean, in all honesty, when it comes to holiday horror, you know, th those few holidays sort of seem a little lower on the totem pole. But then we had Friday the Thirteenth happen in May, and it was like, all right, um, yeah, preseason Halloween has now officially started. If you are a summer loving person, kiss off. Fuck you. I don't care. No. Um. Some people like their summer. I don't. I melt in it. <laughs> um, it's only May, and we had one day where we hit um, close to... Uh, Americans know it as, like, 90 degrees, but here in Canada, it's, like, a little over 30 degrees Celsius. I know. It's kind of cool when you know both, but most people don't. Um, anyways, I was dying. I'm not going to lie. I was. It was not good. I felt like I could start some fires. And you're like, oh, wow, that was a bad lead-in. But, yes, that's where I'm going with this. Because on May 13th, not only was it Friday the 13th, not only did Waxwork release, you know, soundtracks for Friday the 13th parts 1, 2, and 3, we also got a new movie that showed up on Peacock and in theaters. Um, I'm not going to lie. I really hope that for the future, we, we still see movies get released both on like in theaters and on some streaming service because i like that i like the option of having you know like having that option of whether i want to stay home or whether i want to go to the theaters i'm not much of a theater guy myself so hey i love this i got home friday morning and well actually i watched it saturday morning now that i think about it because friday morning i watched friday the 13th part six and whatnot but um yeah so saturday morning i finally kick into firestarter i'm like all right let's see what this movie's like going into this i will say i was aware of all the crap and the hate this movie was getting you know on that happiest of happy uh internet sites you know he he says snarkily but um <laughs> no but the thing is is nothing was going to stop me from giving this movie a shot i had talked about it when i reviewed the 1984 firestarter i said i would definitely give the remake a shot and i did the original is a personal nostalgic favorite of mine, but naturally I was still going to give this a whirl and see, you know, if it lit any fuses. Really dealing out the bad puns this week, I know. Uh, <laughs> anyways, so no spoilers. I'll try to keep the spoilers to, a, 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 you know, a minimum here. 
This is nowhere near as bad as all those wonderful and educated internet reviewers are saying. I know I've heard everything from it's a dumpster fire to this was unneeded, blah, blah, blah. The acting shit, Zach Efron's a cocksucker and all that. I, yeah, the shit's out there. And I mean, and people are mean. Like, they're just mean. And it's like, no, whatever. For me personally, I, I even saw one where people were saying they thought this was like some of the blandest acting they had ever seen. And I'm like, what did you watch? A porn version? Like, I don't think you watched the same movie as me. This movie is not bad at all. The acting of Ryan Kira Armstrong, that she's a little girl that plays Charlie, is really good. So much as I will say, I like her take on the character better than I do Drew Barrymore's. And that's saying something, because if you remember my review for the 1984 Firestarter, I said Drew was definitely one of the highlights. So I like this better than that? That's saying something. That's some pretty damn good acting. As for Zac Efron, uh, he plays Andy McGee in this. Okay, he's not David Keith. David Keith's Andy, for me, is a bit better. But I don't see where people are hating on Zac Efron so much. Like, doesn't do a bad job. Yeah, there's a few lines where I'm kind of like, would he really say that? But, I mean, they got to go with the script they're given, right? I mean, you can only ad-lib so much, and you can only bring so much to a movie. You still got to go with the direction of the director and whatnot, and what's written on the script. So, hey, yeah, there was a few lines I was kind of like, I don't think Andy would have said that, but whatever. It wasn't bad. It was a good movie. Probably the biggest difference for me, though, was the portrayal of Rainbird. Uh, this time around, it was played by the actor Michael Gray Eyes. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, in no, in no way was his take on the character bad, but he's no George C. Scott. And if you, again, remember back to my review about the 1984 one, I basically said George owned that role. He owned that movie. Um, his, his original take on Rainbird was the shit <laughs> um this Rainbird in you know this 2022 version is just not him that's not to take away from michael gray eyes because i like his version too it it's a different take on the character I, from what i've been told and got i read the book when i was in grade school so it's been a while i don't remember the book that well i'm not gonna lie okay so from what i'm hearing this version of Rainbird is a bit closer to the book version. If that's the case, again, it's it's a thing where I'm going to have to go back and reread that book because, like I said, I think I was 12 when I read it. I was a young kid. It's going way back, so I don't remember it that well. But, I mean, it's not bad. It's just, like I said, he's not George C. Scott, and George owned that role. And then, of course, there's the music. For the first movie the 1984 version we had Vangelis you know amazing score this time around we have John and Cody Carpenter along with uh, Daniel Davies you can first off you can't even compare the two okay they're both legendary in their own rights um but in commentary of this film let's stick with just this version of the film the Carpenters and Daniel Davies they made a killer soundtrack here like this movie it I'll, I'm not going to lie. Okay, so Waxwork has released this for pre-order and gets shipped out in October. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be throwing my name in a hat for a fucking pre-order on this. This The score is really good. The music's phenomenal. And I'll go as far as to say it's even better than their recent releases for the last two Halloween movies. Which I like those scores. I own both of those. And if I think this one's better, then why wouldn't I buy the Firestarter score? So... Finish this uh, small review up on Firestarter because I don't want to go into full details. I know, like I said, trying to keep spoilers to a minimum. Story is pretty much the same. 
There's some tweaks here and there. There's some things we see we didn't see in the first version. And there's things that were taken out of the first version. Like, you know what I mean? That are in the first version that they were taken out in this version. Um, the effects were solid, though mostly done with CGI this time. The digital effects, though, are quite good. So no complaints. I'm not going to lie. This is one of the few times where the CGI, I was like, all right, it worked. Um, pacing wasn't bad. Movie's just over 90 minutes long. And the internet is full of assholes. So ignore shitty reviews. It's that simple. Uh, I like the original a lot for nostalgic reasons. It is a decent movie. This one is solid, though, in its own right. And I give it a bonus point because Nitzereb's Control I'm Here shows up in this movie. That is a song from my high school days that I fucking love. And I was like, <gasps> you get a point. So, yeah. Um, moving on to... Uh, no, I'm skipping this movie and leaving it till last. <laughs> uh, move on to Censor. Okay, so Censor was one of those movies mentioned in the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. I was like, oh shit, I wanted to see this movie from 2021. It's got an interesting premise. Um, I will say, though, the execution... Okay, this is, this is me kind of showing my fucking age when I do this, but hey, it happens... The execution's lacking a little in this movie for the fact that the writer and director of this film, she's a little too young to have any recollection of the Video Nasties era because she was born in 1982, which is pretty much when the Video Nasties was in full of fucking fact. So, and this basically shows, when they make the basic point for the Video Nasties in this movie, it's flubbed because they're claiming a certain movie is on the Video Nasties but it's not because if the censor passed the movie, that meant it didn't go on the video nasty. So there's no reason to call the movie a video nasty because it was passed by the censors, making some of the plot seem implausible here because how would they know this movie would have been a video nasty if the censor said, it's okay, let it go, then it never became a video nasty. Therefore, it never would have that label. Um, aside from that, though, Overall, this is not a bad movie for a first-time director because this is her first film. The film does deserve to be cut a bit of slack. It happens with all first-time directors. Every first-time director has a movie with flubs, bloops, blurbs, bubbles and babbles and blurbs. I mean, look, you guys listen to my podcast. You know my tongue gets tied every fucking episode, and I'm 123 episodes into this. So, hey, cut her a bit of slack, right? I mean, the movie is gorgeously shot, for starters. It's fucking beautiful i know i shouldn't swear so much right you're so bad you should be censored uh, i'm always saying that because i'm talking about a movie called censor Anyways, <laughs> um no but the acting is actually what it should be and i did see comments where people you know were saying that the acting was underacted that these people were bland again i get that not everyone always agrees with me on this but sometimes over-the-top acting does not always work in movies. Sometimes just being a natural human being is okay. And I think that's what this movie was doing. These people were just acting natural. Except for, like, there's the one um, censor that's supposed to be part of the BBFC. And he's a little... He's out there a little. But, I mean, in terms of our, you know, our main protagonist, she's pretty natural. And that's all we need her to be. Uh, the music score is soft and atmospheric. This word's going to come up quite a bit in this episode, so I'm just warning you now. Um, but it does help to give the movie an uneasiness to it. Uh, there's a bit of a creepy vibe going on because of the score. Something always feels a little off with the movie, as it should. And another thing about this movie is it's not extremely violent. Um, 
I highlight that because a certain movie I'll be talking about is the exact fucking opposite of this. <laughs> Anyways, um, the ending of this film, though, does have some nice shots. There's some kind of weird shit going on at the end. The movie is confusing. I agree with the criticisms on that. There were even times where I was like literally talking at my screen going, what the fuck are you doing right now? Um, you really do have to pay attention. There's little things that pop up that sometimes I caught it, sometimes I didn't. But, you know, going back and then looking at certain scenes over again, I was like, oh, if I had paid attention to that, I would have got that. instead." Yeah, you really have to be alert when watching this movie. Um, again, you have to pay attention, which can be a chore at times. Because certain segments of this movie, yeah, she's slowly slugging along. It's a bit of a slow burn. Um... I will say this, the very ending is a nice payoff. Again, kind of confusing, but fun nonetheless. The end result, basically, either people will enjoy this movie or they won't finish it. I noticed that. I noticed that when I was reading even comments on Shudder and I was reading comments on the, you know, the internet movie database, you know, where everyone's always so happy. Uh, <laughs> it, it was one of two things. Either people loved this movie or they really enjoyed it or they thought it was good or they didn't finish it. Um, for me, I did enjoy it. But, I mean, as beautiful as it looks on the screen, and again, I will, I will reiterate that. This is a gorgeous-looking movie. It's not one I'm going to return to anytime soon it's it doesn't have that pullback feel or effect to it or whatever i will say that i mean like i i think if the story actually understood better how the video nasties and the bbfc censorship board worked this movie would have had a better reception if it understood the you know section one section two and section three what was you know prosecuted versus wasn't and not to mention what movies were actually on the Video Nasties list because this movie gets points for references to Driller, Killer, and Deranged, but Deranged was not on the Video Nasties list. And I understand that in the movie they're trying to say, well, it wasn't on there because it was passed, but then they keep calling it a Video Nasty. And it's like, you can't call it a Video Nasty if it wasn't on the list. So, anyways, I digress on that. We will move forward... I went to say further and it came up forward. So anyways, that's why that sounded like it. Honestly, it's not a VHS tape slowing down and speeding up or, you know, getting wound up in the wheels or anything. No, no, no. Just me not knowing how to talk. Last night in Soho, 2021. Yes, I know. Another one I scratched off the list. Better late than never. Um, Right? Because I know this movie came out a while ago. I should have seen it. I didn't. Uh, it's an Edgar Wright film. Edgar Wright knows how to make movies. I mean, I still think to this day his best film ever is Shaun of the Dead. By far. But that's me. That's my opinion. Uh, as for this one, Last Night in Soho. So, you know, the whole idea is that this girl, she's going off to fashion school. She moves into northern London. And she's renting out this apartment or this flat or whatever the, you know whatever they call it in the UK I apologize for not knowing all the UK terms uh, anyways she moves into this place and it's sort of taking her off to the 60s where her heart is you know she loves 60s vinyl and she's all about 60s fashion and that's actually what she wants to you know create is you know this she's got this idea for this dress that she saw in a vision 
of a dream or is it a dream? Is it a ghost story? Is it not a ghost story? It kind of plays with you for quite a while. I mean, the movie's almost two hours long. The colors in the movie just, they pop. It just blows up off the screen. I can imagine what this looked like in the theater. So, I mean, like, that's one thing that, yeah, I burn for that. But, hey, <laughs> on my TV, it looked gorgeous. Uh, the soundtrack for this movie is immaculate. It is absolutely perfect. Did I sit here and, you know, start going through all the different songs to see if they actually were out at that time or if it fit the time era? I think, no, I and I I did that for Stranger Things way back when season one came out. And then I kind of kicked myself after because it was like, hey, man, the effort was there. Stop being an ass. So <laughs> I didn't bother with this. Some of these songs may have come out after the time era she was in. Who knows? I will say this. This movie is worth seeing for sure. It might seem a bit slow at first. Let it be. Give it time. It goes from harmless to completely creepy in a quicker form once that ball gets hopping. Two things, though, that did bother me with this film, very minor in the spoiler department, but one was this forced drama between our main character and her supposed enemy classmate. I hate when movies do this. Firestarter does it too, and I won't go any, I won't go further than that, but this bit of, we have these students, and there's always this one bully that picks on them. No one ever deals with the bully. Everyone just lets the bully keep doing what they do, and it's our protagonist or our main character or whatever that is supposed to be the bigger person and not react. And when they do react, all of a sudden it's like, oh, look, they snapped, and everyone's against them. And we see this so many times in these freaking movies. I did not care for this. It's pointless. It goes nowhere, really. Um, And the other thing that this movie sort of bothered me uh, a little bit about was the overuse of the dirty old man trope. And that sometimes gets shoehorned into movies. Um, The thing is, is I get why it's there. And I will say for this film, yeah, it works. It, It makes its point. The only thing is, is that for a movie that's just under two hours long, it feels like this movie relies on that trope too much. And it kind of, A, ruins the effect, and B, it extends the runtime longer than it needed to be. The point was made, we got the hint, in order for this girl in the 60s to move up, she had to sleep with all these men and stuff like We get it, but it seemed like it went on too long, and I was kind of like, okay, I get the fucking point, can we move on? Um, other than... Other than those two gripes, and those are basically my only complaints with this film, everything else about this movie is really good to amazing. Um, As I said, Edgar Wright's best film in my heart is still Shaun of the Dead. But this one is decent for sure, and I highly, highly recommend it. Finally, I'm going all the way back now to my notes. Okay. You will see on social media something that you don't see very often, and that is pretty much a consensus of a film that seems like it is resonating with almost all fans. Now, yeah, there's still the detractors out there that are like, this movie was unoriginal, this movie didn't do anything for me, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, fine. There's always got to be that guy. But a movie has found its way to Shudder. A movie that, on Shudder, a streaming service that specializes in blood, guts, horror, violence, the macabre, the depraved, 
And this movie has a fucking warning at the beginning of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, the movie that I'm talking about is The Sadness. Okay. I'm going to state it right now. First off, I'm not talking much about this movie because you need to see it. I will say it's for hardcore horror fans. So if you will get squeamish over certain things, might want to avoid it. But I should state at the same time that as much as I say, you know, avoid it, I'm also saying don't avoid it. This movie is fucking amazing. But yes, on Shudder has a warning that states... There is extreme violence. And holy fuck. This movie. Okay. Number one. It's insanely awesome. I mean. It's bloody. It's gory. It's depraved. It's vulgar. And I'm saying it's fucking vulgar. (laughs) But it's dead on point. The social and political commentary in this movie is fucking dead on. Like. And that's, okay, so some people I know, you say that, you go, oh, there's a horror film that has social and political commentary, and they go, oh, well, I'm out, it's too woke. No, 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 no. Back your ass up a little bit here. It's not a woke movie. It just has some things to say about society. And I mean, like, it's talking about, like, even our dependence on technology. It's talking about how... Some big incident happens in front of us, and instead of helping someone out, what's the automatic reaction? Get my phone out. I need views and clicks and likes and subscribes on my channel, so I'm going to get a video and put it on schmick because I, I want people to like me on the internet. Um, yeah, it makes commentary about that. <laughs> on top of the fact that... okay. I'm the kind of person, when I watch horror films, I don't react. Um, That's not to say I don't like movies. I love movies. I I love a lot of different shit in horror films and whatnot. But I'm never the kind of person that, like, really reacts. I mean, like, you know how you see, like, you see it on, like, different movies. Like, Scream is a good example. When they show everyone watching Halloween and they're all hooting and hollering and stuff. That's not me. I don't do that. Except for this movie. Um... (laughs) Like, I mean, occasionally I might blur about, like, I'm watching a movie and I go, oof, you know, or I joke about, oh, that hurt, you know, or something. It's usually with a deadpan expression or some little sarcastic comment where I'm like, yeah, his nuts can be fucking feeling that or something to that effect. This movie, on the other hand, I was fucking cheering. I was laughing. I was feeling the fucking pain that these characters would have felt in a real life setting. Like, I mean, there's times where it's like, Ow, that would fucking hurt. And I was actually reacting. The sadness actually feels like an amusement park ride of what the fuck moments and so much blood. And that's coming from a guy who has seen Dead Alive, who has seen the Evil Dead movies. Yes, there is so much fucking blood in this movie. Like I said, this is for hardcore horror fans. So get squeamish. I'm just saying you've been warned. Um, but if you, I will, I gotta say, if you love exciting over the top, batshit crazy and nonstop insanity, have at it, Hoss. Uh, you will not be disappointed. This is 
Well, okay. Easily, this is my favorite movie within the span of the last year. So between May of 2021 and May of now, this is easily my favorite movie. This might end up being my favorite movie of this fucking year. Like, this could be my movie of 2022. I know it came out last year in the film festivals, but we got it on Shutter now. So technically, it's a 2022 film. Holy fuck. Brutal. Fucking brutal. But so much damn fun. Yes, I know. A movie with this much depravity, and I'm sitting here calling it fun. The best way I can explain it is think 28 days later, but hopped up on meth, coke, speed, and heroin all in one fucking shot. And now, finally, 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 I'm going to quickly run through this really quick. Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, which led to me watching a few of these films. Not all of them, but some of them, yes. Hosted by Dave uh, David Dastmelchian. It was on Shutter. It was delayed by 20 minutes because of a technical difficulty, but we did end up getting it. Um, there were some really cool presenters. There's some great categories. Uh, some of the winners included uh, Millicent Simmons for her support supporting role in A Quiet Place 2. Uh, definitely deserved. Um, Absolutely, A Quiet Place 2 is almost on point or on par with the the original. And on top of that, her acting is so amazing in that movie. Definitely deserving. Uh, St. Maud won for best first feature um, over Censor. That's why I kind of mentioned that. St. Maud is one I still have to tackle. So expect a small review sometime in the near future because I'm probably going to be tackling that one soon. Uh, Steven Kostansky won for Best Creature Effects for Psycho Goreman. And uh, let's say PG, he also won for Best Limited Release. Um, yeah, won two awards. Uh, best Lead Performance went to Yaya Abdul-Mateen II for his role in Candyman. Again, well-deserved. You guys have heard me talk about the Candyman movie on this show. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. Best Kill. Uh, this was the one, this was the category where fans filled in their own uh, kill. For me personally, I had a really rough time actually narrowing it down to one, so I actually left that line blank because I couldn't couldn't settle on one. The one that, the, the, the best kill that won it went to uh, Fear Street 1994, the bread slicer kill. I gotta say that one's definitely up there. That was a good one. So <laughs> it was, again, deserving. Uh, Malignant won for best wide release, beating out movies like Candyman, Last Night in Soho, and A Quiet Place 2. Um, so, yeah, it, it, all around it was a great event. It was it ran just a little over an hour long. I think it was about uh, 80 minutes in total or so. Uh, David Dastmelchian is an excellent host. I love him. I think he's great. Very well done, very tight, great, great altogether award show. No, it wasn't live, it was pre recorded. Who cares? This is honestly, you know, if the Academy Awards really are so worried about, you know, they, they want people watching their shows and stuff like that, take notes because Fangoria know how to do it right. Why can't you guys figure that shit out? Um, so I'm just gonna say that, and I'll also mention that, yes, May 13th. Friday the 13th, we also did get... I know it was a great weekend this weekend, guys. There was so much to talk about. Evil Dead the Game was released on Friday the 13th. And from what I've played so far, I have it on Xbox Series X. Um, it's great. It's fucking great. It's awesome. I haven't played it much, though. 
Uh, I've done sort of the single-player missions. I just started one of them. Um, my only, only complaint about this game, and I mean, God, it's so minor, is that when you're doing the single-player missions, if you die, there's no checkpoints. So if you die two seconds before you're supposed to get to the final boss f battle and you're like, oh, okay, I made it there, and then you happen to die, you're starting your ass all the way back at the beginning. It's my only gripe. Other than that, um, I'll probably talk about it more on the next episode, the next coming episodes, once I've had more of a chance to take it all in and whatnot. Um, it is on PC, P uh, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X. Uh, I believe it's also on Nintendo Switch, I think, even got Evil Dead the game. So, I mean, it, it's... It, and cross-platform playing. So if you want to do the online thing and your friends have it on PlayStation and you have it on Xbox, you can still play with them. So that's awesome. Okay, so got done all that. Now it's time for the trailer timeout for Gollum's favorite horror film. Um, that joke, I found that one on the internet, actually. <laughs> I have to say, it made me giggle while I was doing my notes. And I'm like, I'm incorporating that somehow. Uh, it's probably a joke that you guys all heard many years ago. I just discovered it and I thought that was fucking great. So anyways, yeah, we're going to do the trailer timeout. And when we return, our shared Deadcast experience finally will be about a film that came out in 2002 that some people like to claim has outdated tech. And they like to make fun of it on the internet, even though they don't realize how stupid they're making themselves look. So anyways trailer timeout and when we return we come back to the ring back in a splat kids have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it you start to play it and it's like somebody's nightmare and as soon as it's over your phone rings and what they say is you will die in seven days Katie told you she was going to die. She told me. She said she didn't have enough time. Would you say that I'm gullible? No. Easily rattled? You're a little highly strung, maybe. I watched the tape. I'm not going to get all worked up over some rumor. Oh, show it to me. Miss Keller, I'm bothered by these drawings. Why did you draw that house? She told me to. Who? Who told you to? She shows me things. Before you die, you see the ring. The images on the tape are leading us somewhere. Show you the horses. Don't you understand, Rachel? Tell me, Miss. What is it you think you know? Hello? Before you die, you see the ring. You see the ring. It's 
quickly before we get into the ring, I just wanted to say one thing. And no, I'm not sponsored by them. I'm not getting any money for this or whatever. But I mentioned Fangoria, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder how many people, uh, listeners of this show, have subscriptions to the Fangoria magazine. Uh, If you don't, I actually recommend it. Yes, it's pricey. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think, what is it, uh, for a one-year subscription, it's something like 70 bucks or something like that, and that's four issues, and you're like, wow, that's fucking outrageous. So, yeah, we'll try living in Canada when we're paying U.S. prices. But anyways, um, yeah, it's expensive, but it's worth it. I will say that. I also have subscriptions to Horror Hound and Rue Morgue, and it's... From time to time, I like getting the Scream magazine out of the UK as well. I love reading different magazines. Um, It's something that when I was younger, I didn't get to do a whole lot of. I did have a few Starlog magazines and a few Fangorias, but it was something that didn't happen often. As a matter of fact, I had a lot of Mad magazines when I was younger. A lot of Mad magazines and comic books, but I didn't really have a whole lot of Fangorias or Starlogs or any of that. So as an adult, obviously, I like taking that in and enjoying the magazines and whatnot. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm not going to get any money for this. I won't get any sponsorships. They're not going to be like, hey, you, you want to be a writer or an editor on our magazine? No, it's not going to happen. But, hey, I can still give them props. They do some good work, and I thought I would give acknowledgement to that. And now let's move on to our movie. So let's talk about The Ring. I'm going to specify right now, there will be very little talk of the original movie or the original book. I'm focusing, for the most part, primarily on this version. Um, because I, going into the comparisons would extend the length of this episode immensely. So I don't want to do that. Um, I'm going to focus. There'll be talk of Ring Yu and the, the novel and whatnot, but not a whole lot. With that being said, directed by... Oh, no, sorry. Hold on. When was it released, Paul? Do you want to tell us that first? Yes. Okay, so The Ring was released, wide release, October 18th, 2002 in North America. I believe there was a film festival it was aired at October 2nd. That was a very limited. It was like a one-time deal at a film fest. And then... 16 days later, it got its wide release throughout North America. And I believe like Australia and the UK and stuff like that, it was like a week later. So anyways, now moving on to our director. The director for this film is Gore Verbinski. Um, His first full-length movie was Mouse Hunt, if you remember that little ditty. And afterwards, he did uh, The Mexican. He did this. This was his third film, I believe. And then... He's also the guy that gave us the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, he also gave us Rango. He also gave us The Lone Ranger. He liked working with Johnny Depp. I don't like bringing up that name right now just because of everything surrounding around it. And then everyone's all like, Oh, hey, did you see this on social media today about Johnny Depp? Yeah, yeah, I know. We're all Team Johnny, right? Yeah, okay. Anyways, I don't want to get into that. But anyways, he did work with him quite a bit. <laughs> He worked with uh, Hans Zimmer quite a bit, too. I'll mention that. Um, And Gore Verbinski also did A Cure for Wellness. Now, Gore actually started his career off as a guitarist for punk bands like the Daredevils and the Little Kings. But he also had a knack for camera work. 
Uh, before going into movies, though, he did music videos. He did a lot of directing for music videos for bands like L7, Bad Religion, and Monster Magnet. And then from there, he did a few commercials for companies like Nike and Coca-Cola, but probably his most famous commercials that he was behind. Yes, you're going to love this. Gore Verbinski was the man behind the Budweiser commercials with the croaking frogs. You know, the Budweiser frogs? Yeah, he did that. And then after that, he went on to film. And like I said, The Ring was the third film on his resume. The first two being Mouse Hunt and The Mexican. So... But yeah, he went from being in punk band to directing music videos to doing commercials to this. So, hey, um, a point of note. So, Gore Verbinski was a director for this, but he wasn't the first person they thought of. Uh, David Lynch was actually offered the chance to direct this film first, but he turned it down. Can you imagine if David Lynch did this movie? Fuck. Like ring the ring already is like a fucked up movie, and then you have David Lynch bringing his like Twin Peaks vibe to it. Like, fuck, um, yeah. I'm actually kind of curious as to what that would have looked like. The Ring 2002. I call it the Ring 2002, but it's the Ring. Whatever. Um, there's 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 the Ring. There's the Ring Two. There's rings. There's Ring. There's Ring You. I mean, like you get the point. So, anyways. The Ring 2002 um, is a remake of a Japanese adaptation of the 1991 novel of the same name. The novel was written by Koji Suzuki, and he also wrote the original story for Darkwater, which was another Japanese property that was given the U.S. remake treatment. Um, the Ring is the one that kickstarted that whole movement on. Uh, the Japanese adaptation of Ring Yu. Uh, which was the basis for the English version, The Ring, was written by Hiroshi Takahashi. And he also received credits for the Ring U sequels, as well as films like Sodom the Killer and Don't Look Up. Now, that's pretty much the most I will talk about the other properties. They'll get mentioned here or there, but for the most part, that's the end of that. So now moving on to the screenplay for The Ring. Uh, it was written by Aaron Kruger, who also wrote screenplays and stories for movies like Scream 3, uh, Reindeer Games, The Ring 2, Blood and Chocolate, um, <laughs> three of the Transformers sequels. We're talking Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon, and Age of Extinction. Should we blame Aaron for those? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Ghost in the Shell? Um, I know some people don't like that movie, whatever. Again, I don't hate it. Not the anime that I love and dear to my heart, but I don't hate it. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for Dumbo. And most recently, I'm throwing this out there now because this movie is coming out in just a few weeks, Top Gun Maverick. Yes, Aaron Kruger wrote the screenplay for that. And that movie is out in theaters May 27th. For those of you who care, uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm curious. I'm actually, I, I, I grew up with the original Top Gun. Yeah, it's a cheesy movie. We love it, though, for its cheesiness. And I'm not going to lie. I'm curious to see this new movie. I have a feeling it's going to be sort of like a carbon copy of the original with some tweaks and movement, you know, things moved around and stuff. Maybe, maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't know. I haven't really put too much thought into it. Moving on to our producers. Our producers for this film are Walter F. Parks and Laurie McDonald. 
Parks and McDonald worked together quite a bit. Now, before that, Walter actually wrote the screenplay for War Games, the 1982 movie with Matthew Broderick, and he wrote it with Lawrence Lasker. They ended up winning. Uh, well, it was Oscar nominated. I can't remember if they won. I think they won. Could be wrong on that. But um, the thing is, is he wrote the screenplay for War Games a year after he met Laurie McDonald. Now, in 1993, Steven Spielberg approached both Parks and McDonald and asked them to run Amblin Entertainment. Now, I should say that... Um, Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker worked together for quite a bit. They had a bit of a partnership going on. And then um, Lasker broke away from that so that uh, Walter Parks could work with Laurie McDonald. And then that's when Steven Spielberg came up to Parks and McDonald and said, do you guys want to run Amblin Entertainment? So they took, they took that over. A year later, the two were sought out now to start up the DreamWorks studio. And the duo would produce films like The Peacemaker, um, not... Not the John Cena one. Um, we're talking George Clooney here. Uh, Peacemaker, Gladiator, The Ring, among many other films and whatnot. Uh, so, uh, Parks and McDonald was sort of... Uh, it really had their heyday in the, um, I guess, like early 90s, you know, around there. Up into, well into the 2000s and whatnot. And I believe they're still working together even to this day. Cinematography by it's either Bojan or Boyan Bazelli, uh, who's worked on films like Pumpkinhead, King of New York, California, Deep Deep Cover, Sugar Hill, and A Cure for Wellness. Cure for Wellness is one I still have to knock off my list as well. I've heard a lot of good things about it. And yeah, Gore Verbinski did that, worked with Bojan on that one. So I'm gonna say Bojan. I hope I'm saying it right, unless it's Boyan. Say Bojan. Music by Hans Zimmer. 227 composing credits. Hans basically drops it down and says, Suck him, bitch. No, I'm kidding. He's probably not that kind of guy. But <laughs> uh, this is a guy who started his musical career with the band Krakatoa. And then he would go on to be part of the Buggles think most people know the song video killed the radio star he was part of that he was i guess he's even seen in the video i haven't seen the video in fucking years so i couldn't tell you i can't remember but i'm pretty sure he's in the video um but yeah he was part of that his big time film score composing aspect of his career though really began with rain man um he was composing before then but rain man was the one that really put him on the map um, from there, he would go on to score films like Gladiator, Hannibal, The Dark Knight, Batman v Superman, uh, Blade Runner 2049, X-Men, Dark Phoenix. I know, bad movie. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Dark Phoenix was not a horrible film. I liked it better than I did X-Men Apocalypse, so I, I'll give it that. It wasn't great, but I didn't hate it either. Um, he also worked on Dune. He worked on Army of Thieves. And... You'll, you'll hear his music again very soon in Top Gun Maverick. Um, yeah, that seems to come up a lot. On to our starring cast. Here are the people that put it on the screen for you. Um, no, uh, okay. Uh, so how I did this, this is, it was a long cast. I kind of broke it down to just the people we need to know. The, the people that stand out, um, the main 
main characters because the, the the cast list went on pretty long, but it was a lot of, well, this person's got two minutes on the screen and this person had three minutes on the screen and this person was the innkeeper and stuff. Yeah, there, I focused more on the people that you see quite often in this movie. Starting off with, yes, absolutely, Naomi Watts as Rachel Keller. Uh, Naomi, we've seen her in other films like Tank Girl, King Kong, The Ring 2, and Mulholland Drive. Now, the role of Rachel was originally offered to Jennifer Connelly. Now, Jennifer didn't get the role, but interestingly enough, Jennifer would start in the horror remake of the Japanese movie Dark Water. So, she didn't star in The Ring, but when they did the remake of the Japanese movie Dark Water, she got the starring role in that. So... That's kind of cool. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was also offered the role of Rachel, but she turned it down because she didn't want the typecast title of Scream Queen. Um, she wanted to... She did... I know what you did last summer, but she didn't really want to have that continue on because the idea of being a Scream Queen, she figured, would tie her down to the horror genre. And for some actors, they just don't like that. Don't know why, but whatever. Is what it is. Moving on to David Dorfman as Aiden Keller, little boy. He's our little creepy boy in this movie. Uh, he was also in movies like Panic, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake in 2003, and he was in The Ring too. Now, his last acting credit came in 2010, uh, which was right before he got accepted into Harvard Law School at the age of 17. And I do recall reading that at the age of 21, so four years later... He did graduate with his degree, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, he hasn't done any acting since 2010. Um, but yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003 is actually not a bad remake. Um, not my favorite remake by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, it's not bad. I like it. Moving on to Martin Henderson as Noah Clay. Um, Martin was basically in other movies like Smoking Aces. Uh, the Strangers Pray at Night, and another movie that I talked about on last episode, X, uh, that movie that was directed by Ty West. Yeah, he's in that. Okay, moving on to DeVay Chase as Samara Morgan. Yes, our famous well girl. Uh, pretty much when people think of the ring, this is what they think of. They think of Samara. Um, DeVay Chase also played Samantha Darko in Donnie Darko and in its sequel, S. Darko. Um, she's also done voice acting for Spirited Away and Lilo and Stitch, along with a lot of the Lilo and Stitch, um, sequels and the video games and the whole nine yards. She's done a lot of that. Uh, in 2016, she was in the horror film Jack Goes Home. Uh, Jack Goes Home was written and directed by Thomas Decker. Thomas Decker, if you remember, um, he was from Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. He played John Connor. He was also in John Carpenter's Village of the Damned as a little boy. Um, he's not the, in my opinion, he's not the best actor, but he's not the worst actor. Like, I've liked stuff he's done. There's stuff I haven't liked. Um, he also was on an episode of Elvira's Movie Macabre. He was supposed to be her son. <laughs> it was kind of funny, actually, because he was like claiming that uh, she was his mother and all this stuff. It was kind of funny. Anyways, he was on that as well. Moving on to 
Brian Cox as Richard Morgan. Here's a busy man with 235 acting credits to his name. Some of the standouts, though, he was in Manhunter from 1986. He was Hannibal Lecter before Anthony Hopkins was. Uh, he was in the movie Kiss the Girls. He was William Stryker in X2, X-Men United. I'm just going to put this out there now. I love the first X-Men and the second one. Those two are by far probably my favorites. And his William Stryker, as much as he was somewhat of an asshole, he played it well. I liked him. So I had to mention that. He was also in the film Zodiac. Uh, he was in Trick or Treat from 2007. Uh, and recently he did the voice work for Bla Blade Runner Black Lotus, which I've talked about on this show. Um, for this movie... Okay, he was actually offered a role for Ghost Ship, uh, which was another movie that came out in 2002. He turned down that role to be in this movie because when they approached him, they said when they wrote the character of Richard Morgan, they had only him in mind. And he was sort of honored by that. So he turned down a role in Ghost Ship to be in this movie. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Shannon Cochran as Anna Morgan. She's pretty much basically known for her work in the ring series and Anna Morgan is the woman that's in like the the uh, the BHS curse kind of thing she's Samara's mother more or less and whatnot so she's that's where she's really famous from she's done other stuff but it was pretty much the ring that was her most famous stuff we have Amber Tamblin as Catherine Katie Embry Katie uh, and Rachel Bella as Becca. She's Rebecca Kotler, I guess was her last name. I didn't catch that in the movie, but whatever. That's what it's stated anyways. Uh, so Katie and Becca, they're the two girls that start off the movie. They're talking about, you know, have you seen this tape that apparently kills you after you watch it? And it's them too. Um, so Amber went on to work on another Japanese-turned-U.S. property. Uh, she worked in The Grudge 2. She was also in, was it 15 or 16 episodes of uh, House MD, Dr. House? She was in that, and she was also in Django Unchained. And uh, Rachel Bella as Becca, she did mostly TV work, which included appearances on ER, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, True Calling, and Boston Public. Another TV star who made their way into this movie in a small role was Polly Perrette. She plays Beth in this, but most people know her from NCIS as Abby. Um, you know, the goth uh, CSI, uh, the intellect, basically. But, like, she's the goth one and whatnot. A lot of people know her from that. I mean, what, 15, 16 years on that show? Uh, yeah. Uh, and finally, Adam Brody makes an appearance in this film as Kellen, you know, or male teen. He's not in it long. But I bring his name up because he was... Uh, he, he was Pretty much in the OC for the most of its runtime, if I remember correctly, like this, what was it, seven, eight years, whatever it was. Uh, but he was also in Jennifer's Body and Scream 4 and Ready or Not, all three of which are great horror films. Scream 4, all right, maybe it's average. It's not great, but it's not bad. Um, Jennifer's Body is a clever little movie that doesn't always get the love it deserves and ready or not is just fucking awesome but that's all because of Samara leaving and we will move on 
The runtime for this movie is an hour and 55 minutes. It's rated PG-13 for moderate levels of violence and gore, profanity, and frightening and intense scenes. The budget was $48 million. Listen to this, guys. The box office gross for this fucking movie was $249.3 million. Nice. Nice take home for this movie. Okay. The synopsis for this movie. It sounds like just another urban legend. A videotape filled with nightmarish images leads to a phone call foretelling the viewer's death in exactly seven days. Newspaper reporter Rachel Keller is skeptical of the story. Until four teenagers all die mysteriously exactly one week after watching just such a tape. Allowing her investigative curiosity to get the better of her Rachel tracks down the video and watches it. Now, she has just seven days to unravel the mystery. For this next segment, I'm calling this Horseplay. Too soon? Yeah, if you've seen this movie, you know about the horse. It's a rough scene. (laughs) Um... I mean, they don't show anything. It's one of those what's implied, but it's what's implied that's bothersome. Anyways, did you know the type of ghost that Samara or her Japanese incarnation, um, Sadako? Is it Sadako? Sadako? Again, me with the horrible pronunciations. But anyways, uh, Sadako uh, is the Japanese version. Samara is the English version. Anyways, her ghost is based on the mythological Onryo which is a Japanese ghost that manifests after dying in the grip of powerful rage. In other words, oh, and they'll return back as some like pale physical ghost. Anyway, so more or less what it is, is that it's when they died. If they died a traumatic death, they come back with this rage. They come back angry with a curse to them and whatnot. And that's basically what Samara is. Um, Samara's psychic abilities. Now this is kind of cool. This is kind of interesting. And it's something that, I wish Cinema Sins would have understood because they kept saying, well, how did she put these images on this VHS tape if she's a ghost? She has a psychic ability known as Nensha. It's also considered a a kind of quote-unquote thoughtography, which is a form of spirit photography. And anyways, what it does is it basically allows that spirit to burn images from their mind into any solid surface. Just by thinking about them. Well, you consider the VHS tape is that solid surface. So basically what she's able to do is explain through this tape, these burned memories, these burned images that are very sporadic in in her spirit. She's able to burn them into the VHS. And that's how she is also able to explain what happened to her and, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um it's 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 what leads to that videotape, you know. Um, and then, of course, uh, what is it? Is it Rachel? I believe is the one that makes a copy of the tape. That's important to remember. Never really explain. I mean, it explains why, but it's sort of like sort of vague, which I think is why some people, when they watch this movie, they get confused. I didn't, but some people do. Anyways, what's kind of cool? I thought I would mention this: um, a metal band by the name of Orbit Culture. Yeah, I think I've mentioned them on this show before. They're really fucking good. Anyways, they have a song actually called Nencha, and coincidentally, the music video for that has the same bluish-greenish hue 
that can be found in the, the visuals of the ring movie for the choice of the film's color. Um, they decided the, the the director decided to give this movie that green hue. That's it's, it's sort of like a bluish green, but I guess they they say it's just like kind of green or whatever to give the film like it's a, an unhealthy or an unnatural feeling. Um, the sets were also lit in a way. This was kind of interesting. I didn't know. That. I just discovered this about the movie, and now almost makes me want to go back and rewatch it yet again to see just how much was done this way but anyways it was lit in a way that the characters um would not have a shadow and i didn't actually pay attention to that and after i found that out i was doing my notes i'm like fuck now i want to go back and watch this again (laughs) shit it kind of made me want to see that but yeah like i do know there's certain scenes where i'm especially with samara you don't see any shadows so i was like oh that's kind of cool um and it was done basically to give a subconscious sense of creepiness um in both the American and the Japanese versions. So the name that they use for the little girl. Now, in the Japanese version, it's Sadako. In this version, it's Samara. Now, the name of the little girl is connected to some form of a story of death. Now, with Samara, we'll stay with this movie. It refers to a story that was retold by W. Somerset Mogum. Mogum? I think I'm saying his last name right. Anyways, I'm watching the she, and I just completely really fucked that up. But anyways, uh, there there was a, a story called Appointment in Samara about a man who meets death in a marketplace and flees to the town of Samara. So Samara, in, in that regard, is linked to a story of death. Um, and like I said, I, I didn't look it, I didn't look into it, but apparently Sadako is the same thing. Now, some believe the title for the ring, you know, was in regards to the phone ringing. Um, You know, after you watch this video, your phone rings. And in some cases, it's actually almost annoying in the movie because someone's making a phone call and the other end is not picking it up. And you're like, pick up the goddamn phone. But um, yeah, (laughs) and nobody has an answering machine, apparently. Um, But yeah, so the real meaning behind the ring... um, there never it never was really highlighted. Although Koji Suzuki, who is the author of the original novel, he always wanted he, his intention for the title "The Ring" was actually about the cyclical nature of the plot. How someone watches a tape, they have seven days to watch it. If they don't watch it, they'll die. If they make a copy of it and have someone else watch it, it now moves on to that person until that person makes a copy of it and passes it on. It's sort of like it follows in a little regard like that um, in the fact that they, in order to get rid of it, they have to pass it on to someone else, but it's obviously done differently because in that, in it follows, it was regarding STDs and this it's regarding this like visual curse. Um, I mean, sure. You could probably break this down and go into a whole bunch of metaphors and shit, but for the purpose of this episode and whatnot, the, the the writer of the book basically said, look, it was about the idea of the cycle, the, the cycle of the process for, you know, the whole plot, basically. So uh, in terms of early promotion gimmicks, I like this. On the first week of release in the United States and Canada, so in North America, certain theaters, not the one I saw it in back in 2002, damn it, but anyways... Certain theaters 
uh, they would put actual copies of VHS tapes with the cursed images on the tapes. And they would just be sitting there on the seats for whoever would sit in those seats. And they were freebies. Fuck off. This didn't happen to me in 2002. Sucks. But anyways, whatever. Um, that cursed video is now available as an Easter egg on the DVD and the Blu-ray and the whole nine yards. I mean, it's... And on the DVD, it's kind of cool. I don't know about the Blu-ray. I honestly don't have this one on Blu-ray. I'd have it on VHS and DVD, but I don't have the Blu-ray. Um, it's kind of cool if you start that little Easter egg of watching the video It'll actually shut your remote control up. It did. You know, like how when you watch the FBI warnings in the beginning and you can't forward them, you have to sit there and actually watch it and it won't let you do anything. Well, it's kind of like that. You have to actually watch this video. And then when it's done, I believe it's something like there's like a phone that rings twice. And then all of a sudden your remote control will work again and whatnot. So it's, it's kind of funny. It's a cute little gimmick or whatnot. Um, I will say, though. Finally, until uh, Stephen King's It in 2017, this movie, The Ring, was the highest-grossing horror remake in history. Uh, that's that $249 million. Yeah, that was the highest for a horror remake in history. Uh, and that's, that's topping out some of the big ones. Um, granted, a lot of the big ones usually failed in the box office. We're talking The Thing. We're talking The Blob. I believe even the fly, I mean, it's, the, the fly was successful, but not that successful. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003 didn't even do this, you know? Like, I, some of these remakes that, you know, people love today didn't do what this one did. And then along came Stephen King's It and said, you know, hold my balloon and watch this. So now how do I feel about this movie? What was my takeaway? Is the Ring remake worth it or not? Here's the thing with the Ring. And yeah, that rhymes, I know. I might have done that intentionally. I might have. I might have. Anyways, for me personally, when I watch this movie, this is how you do a fucking remake. This is how you do a retelling of a story where the original of a different national origin is already a gem. Now, and, and I, I bring this up because we have a Train to Basan remake coming. I'm not saying it's going to be good. I'm keeping my reservations because they're already calling it a train. What was it? A train on its way to New York or some bullshit like that. I already don't like that, but whatever. Okay. This here is how you do it because the original ring. You is a great movie. As a matter of fact, the original, what three, four films are fucking awesome. I, I, I have the arrow collection. Okay. Like I love the originals. Um, but this, this is fucking good. This is a good movie. Um, this English-speaking remake. I know it, it, some people like to call it the American remake, whatever. It, Naomi Watts is Australian, so I, I don't know. Anyways, this English-speaking remake is just as great, and in the eyes of quite a few people, too. I might say a lot of people consider this to be better than the original. I don't know if I can go that far. Um... <laughs> I really do love that original film. Um, I really, really love that original film. I don't know that I can call this better than than the original, but I will say it is definitely fucking up there. God, this is it's this is not a bad remake um, at all. The direction of Gore Verbinski in this is great, and the visual perspective that Bojan Bazelli brings is amazing in this. Like it's 
like I said or way earlier in the show, I said atmospheric is going to be a word you might hear a couple times in this episode. It's also a word that gets a thrown thrown around a lot with this film. Um, but in this case, it actually does fit. I'm not going to lie. Like the green hue, which is kind of funny because a lot of people, when you, when you talk about a movie that has a green hue, everyone's mind quickly jumps to the matrix. This movie did it too, though. Um, and three years later at that. And it, it, it really adds to the presentation. Uh, it really helps. It gives, because this is supposed to be a supernatural thriller, right? Like, I don't even know. Yes, it's a horror film, but it's, I think it's more thriller in its own way. And the thing is, is the green hue really makes it feel more surreal and unsettling. Like, it, when it, when they said they wanted to give it sort of like a sick, sickly or an ill feeling to it, it worked. It, it really does. Um, the acting for this movie. Some critics have made the complaint that the acting in the movie seemed uninspired or wooden. They say the same thing about Keanu Reeves all the time, and I don't see that either. With this, I have to disagree immensely on that. And not... I know, people think, okay, guy watching Naomi Watts, yeah, he thinks she's cute little eye candy. Yes, she's cute. That can't be denied. (laughs) But it's a lot... More than that, and I hate when people will do that too. Where it automatically, if you say you, you know, oh, well, the acting is really good. Oh, you just think they're hot. I hate when people do that because, yes, Naomi Watts is beautiful. I'm not gonna deny that, but her acting in this, why I like it so much is she's not over the top. She's not whiny and cryy, or she's not super bold and oh, look at me, I'm so tough. And that she's just natural. She acts like a mother would. Okay, I know that some people have pointed out that sometimes the kid is part of the story and then all of a sudden he disappears for 30 minutes of the runtime. But you have to keep in mind, like, they are, they already first off, they already established there's a disconnect between her and her son because her son keeps calling her her name and not mom. He keeps calling her Rachel. So there's, there's clearly a disconnect already between mother and son. So I get that. Um... I don't find that it seems unnatural because that does happen. I mean, I've witnessed it in my own life. I've seen, you know, parents and their kids not have that connection. So, I mean, does it seem out of place a little bit? But at the same time, it wasn't something that seemed jarring to me. I wasn't like, okay, well, whatever. Um, I, I still felt that it was natural. There's no crazed lunacy in this. Like, it's not like, and, and even at the point where, you know, she almost feels like it's ready to, she's ready to give up and whatnot. It's not like she's like, oh, throwing herself around and stuff. Like, she's just like, no, I, I, I'm at my wit's end. I'm done. It's over. I don't, what we don't realize at that point is she's actually not, not going to die because she already made a copy of the tape. But that's a reveal that comes later in the movie. But the thing is, is that with the acting, there's no cringe-worthy performances. It's just people acting like normal people, and this is everyone from, you know, Brian Cox to um, even uh, what's her name, Shavay. Uh, God damn it, I'm forgetting her fucking name, and it's gonna bother me. Devay Chase. I knew. I, I'm sitting here. I'm like, what the fuck? Her Samara is just perfectly creepy without over being over the top creepy. Like, it's not like she just does it very subtle, the little foot, the footsteps. And especially that scene where she's crawling out of the TV. It's not like, Oh my God, she's this monster. It's like, 
you can almost understand why Noah is sort of he's running, but at the same time, he's like, what's going on here? Because it's like, she's not super imposing. You know what I mean? Like it works. Uh, the two girls at the very beginning, Katie and Becca, like they act like two girls that would normally act like two teenage girls sitting there talking about their boyfriends and whatnot and all that sort of shit. So I never felt that the acting was cringeworthy or over the top or anything. I will say this though. Okay. So yeah. Um, it's suspension of disbelief, right? Okay, so because you have this scene, there's this scene in the movie that I will say does stand out, and that's the whole hey, Rachel falls down this well, this deep well, it goes down some stories and not only survives it, but she has no scratches or cuts or bruises or anything. And then on top of that, she's at the bottom of the well, she's unconscious, she's laying in the water, and she doesn't drown. Yeah, that whole scene actually happens. And it's like, it, it's funny because I remember even like when I saw this at the theaters in 2002, <laughs> and she fell down the well and I'm like, she's dead. And here she is lying in the water. And it's like, she's, she's not drowning. Like, I don't, I don't understand this. But I mean, the thing is, is we're talking about a movie about, you know, a VHS tape that will curse you and bring you bad luck and death. Who's really looking for reality in that film? I mean... I don't know, like a VHS tape that will bring you bad luck. Oh, wait, hold on. That could be reality. Does the double VHS cassette for Titanic count? Uh, anyway, um, I'm all about the bad jokes this week, kids. But seriously, save for maybe David Dorfman as Aiden. Uh, everyone, their acting really feels natural in this movie. Nothing feels out of place. And I, I, I'll also say, as for David, like, okay, his portrayal is portrayal portrayal of Aiden is not horrible. Um, the thing that it sort of strikes me is because it, his whole is very similar to the whole creepy kid trope that we've seen in other movies before movies like nightmare on Elm street five, the dream child, the sixth sense or the omen. And that's just naming a few. Um, I mean, it still works, but it's just, we had seen it before. And on top of that, like, I mean, especially with this, because The Sixth Sense came out in 1999 and this came out three years later. So it was still very familiar. So the whole creepy kid, the whole creepy vibes with the kid and whatnot was just a little too familiar. But it's his acting still wasn't bad. It was just, we'd seen it before. Um, I talk about the, the opening scene with the two girls. I mean, it. here's the thing about that scene. I really should actually highlight something here is that the, the fact that, okay, when this movie starts off, it's a very typical opening. Two teenage girls talking about some curse and some little, you know, urban legend or whatever. It actually seems very typical. It's a great deception tool. It really is. When you think about it, it's a great deceptive move on the part of the directors and the right, the director and the writers, because you have to keep in mind as this movie trickles along, uh, trickles along, it becomes anything but typical. The pacing for the movie goes at a decent, consistent pace. So yes, it's not super fast. It does take its time. Some people would even call it a slow burn. But it makes... It it helps... How do I word this? That final act has like amazing payoff in a superior way. And that's the thing. This movie does it with very little gore or jump scares. This is horror done right, kids. And I know I say very little gore, and then earlier in this episode, I'm like raving about the sadness, which is probably one of the goriest fucking films we've seen in the last 20 years. 
But but the thing is, is that in terms of this being, this is a ghost story. And it's got a nice twist on a ghost story. So it's horror done right. It's done in a moment in time with the tech of the time, which is the early 2000s. We had cell phones at the time with flip phones, though. We had DVD players, but VHS was still very relevant. And flat screen, widescreen TVs were not a common thing yet. So in this movie, you see a lot of the tube TVs with that 4 to 3 aspect ratio and stuff. Landline phones were common. I bring all this up because there's this stupid post that floats around online from time to time where some woman is claiming that she's watching The Ring with her kids and she's explaining to them about the horrors of the film and she's going on about how it has landlines and TVs and VCRs and that her kids don't understand what these things are. Um, It's an idiotic post. It's stupid. It was someone trying to get their 15 minutes of fame and the way social media works, she won. Fuck. Because, honestly, first off, VHS has made a huge resurgence in the past 5 to 10 years, so it's not like kids don't know what VHS players are. Show them an 8-track tape, now that's different. Probably don't know what the fuck that is. But you show them a VHS tape, they know what that is. They know what VHS, like VCRs are, VHS players are. They know what landlines are, because a lot of teenagers work at jobs, and... What do most companies have? They still have fucking landlines. It's not like it's something that, oh my God, it's so, you know, prehistoric that they wouldn't know what the hell it is. No, they know what it is. I tell you, I miss 2002 sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Quickly jumping through this, though, because I don't want to just be Mr. Oh my God, I hate the world. Um, The score for this film by Hans Zimmer is haunting. It's dark, not overpowering, which I love. It's just enough to make the movie work at a perfect level. It's not overpowering. Some movies today, oh my God, some movies from the past even. Uh, Lady Frankenstein was one of those where the score at times was so fucking loud that you actually couldn't hear the actors talking. Um, And with this, it's perfect. It's just a nice level of subtle. It works very well. Uh, The Ring, for the most part has been received in great fashion. This is one of the few films where critics and fans collectively laud this film as a success. Um, In terms of awards, in 2002, the the movie itself won uh, both Saturn Awards it was nominated for, which was Best Horror Film and Best Actress Naomi Watts. In 2003, DeVay Chase won the MTV Movie Award for Best Villain. My only problem with that is, do we actually consider Samara the villain? because the way I look at it is this. I mean, yes, she has put the curse on the VHS tape that once viewed gives the viewer seven days left to live. And if they don't make a copy of it and pass it on, you know, they'll die. But we find out through that flashback that Rachel sees somehow that Samara was a victim of murder. She, um, and on top of that, when she was murdered, when she was she first, you know, her mother puts a bag over her head, thinks she's killed her, then pushes her in a well. But at the time she was pushed in that well, she was actually still alive. So she was forced to suffer through fear and death while drowning in a well with a fucking lid put over top of it. That when the 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 sun came through, like the light came through the cracks, showed a ring. Ooh, interesting. Um, the thing is, though, is I don't know that I consider Samara a villain. 
I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, cool, it's awesome she won the award and whatnot, but I don't know that she's the villain. But I guess also that would be why some critics like Renee Rodriguez of the Miami Herald or Claudia Puig of USA Today said they found the movie confusing at the ending didn't make sense. Um, I don't know that I think that the movie is really that hard to follow, but I do admit there are some things that are confusing, and that's one of them, like, is Samara actually a villain? I don't know. She's more a spirit of rage, but rightfully so. I don't know. Ebert and Roper, they uh, reviewed this. Roper liked the movie, gave it two thumbs up. Ebert, not so much. Uh, he felt it was boring and borderline ridiculous. What's ridiculous is watching a movie like this and expecting any kind of normal presence. This is a ghost story. It's going to require some suspension of disbelief. So, maybe not take it so seriously? Rotten Tomatoes has the movie at 71% approval rating. It has a B-minus score on CinemaScore. Metacritic sees the film sitting at a 57 out of 100, and on IMDb it's sitting at a 7.1 out of 10. Finally, the Podcast Zero rating. Okay, so this is a movie that led to other remakes such as The Grudge and Dark Water to become a thing. So this idea of taking Japanese properties and giving them the America touch. It's all about America. Uh, no, but seriously, they took a Japanese property, they made it an English-speaking property, this was the one to kick it off. Of all the J-horror, they call that J-horror films and whatnot, to be readapted re for English audiences, The Ring might just stand as the best of the bunch. A lot of people actually feel this way. I think I'm almost on par with that. That said, I do love the original grudge as well, and Darkwater is not that bad. I, I might have a partial, you know... A, What's that? I, a likeness to Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> I think I've mentioned that on this show a couple times. But yeah, no, Darkwater was done well. Uh, the Grudge was done well. But this one might actually be the best of them. It's got solid acting. It's got a creepy, unsettling, uneasy pacing. Not a complete slow burn, but just slow enough to make everything just sit there. And... It gives the story that perfect nuance of horror. It's got a solid score from Hans Zimmer. Again, not overpowering, just enough. Just enough to make this haunt you just a little bit. And the visuals work. The direction of Gore Verbinski aids the story in making this movie a hauntingly atmospheric tale of tragedy, sadness, and anxiety because some people watching this have said they get very anxious watching it. I like this movie. I like it a lot. Even with the unbelievable survivalism displayed by Naomi Watts' character Rachel after she falls down the well, which should have been to her death, I still like this movie. This movie is one that, even with its flaws, has garnered more praise than criticism, and rightfully so. The Podcast Zero rating for this film stands at 8 top-loading VHS players out of 10. Or eight classic tube TVs out of ten. Either way, you go with whichever you want. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, it's an eight out of ten for me. Like, this is one that I love. I probably would own it on Blu-ray if I didn't already have the VHS and the DVD. Um, and the DVD I have is the special edition. So that's why I've kind of taken my time getting the Blu-ray. Um, not to mention it's 
you know, you can always find it somewhere digitally. Like, it's not a hard movie to find. So, eventually one day it'll grace the Blu-ray collection. But for now, I'm happy with it. I, I love this movie. And it's one that I revisit quite often, actually. Like I said, it was cool doing this review, though, because I still was learning stuff. There's so much to this movie. And there was a lot of trivia I left out, more or less, because I didn't feel like it really was necessary. But, um... I put it out there because I say, like, if you want to learn more about this movie, there's lots out there. Um, there's lots of different reviews. There's lots of different um, trivial facts and whatnot about this movie. There's videos, you know, things you didn't know about The Ring. There's the cinema sins, you know, everything wrong with The Ring. And some of it is actually pretty funny that they, you know, they poke fun at and whatnot. So this is, this is definitely one of those, um, it's a mainstream movie that... I can totally get behind. 8 out of 10 for me. On that note, thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for coming back. I need to say this. Um, so, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, all the podcasts on the network, we switched um, from Next Radio, uh, Next Level Radio Online.com to Red Circle. And Red Circle now hosts all the shows and whatnot. Um, which we a lot of us like because we get like um, we get like stats and whatnot as to you know how well the shows are doing and whatnot. Uh, over the course of the past year, just uh, just being on Red Circle, this show itself has broken over five thousand downloads, and I'm almost at six thousand. You guys have no clue, like. I understand that, you know, your bigger shows get 10,000 per episode. For me, 5,000 episodes for this show, if, whether it be collective episodes or whatever, that's awesome. Um, and it means a lot to me. So for all of the listeners and the bots that are probably downloading this too, I'm not stupid. I know how the internet works. But <laughs> the thing is, is that I obviously have some listeners that keep coming back and that means a lot to me. So thank you so much for that. Um, it's kind of stupid that every episode I always say this at the end, but I say, you know, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, FM Player, Facebook, Instagram, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's the show is getting out there. The, the show is picking up viewers and whatnot. And trying to be algorithms on social media is not always fun because I love it when I post something and it says five people saw this and it's like, fuck you. Um, but yeah. Uh, awesome thank you so much guys um and like i say you, obviously you know you know where you're finding the show um on social media it's on facebook instagram twitter the email is what lurks behind podcast zero at gmail.com and yeah that's just it's awesome i also want to mention i actually <laughs> i should um acknowledge this uh there was a an email i got from someone we'll call him melvin that was his first name um who was talking about uh stephen king not liking a lot of the movies that come out that are adaptations of his uh firestarter being one of them obviously the shining being another one um he's not wrong and and to that point yeah uh from what i've heard this recent iteration of Firestarter, I believe Stephen King was actually more behind this one. Um, so that says something. I know the internet is still going to slag this movie because that's what the internet does. But Stephen King, from what I've been hearing, and I could be proven wrong on this, uh, but I believe he did say that he actually was quite supportive of this new iteration that was coming out. So 
that's something awesome to keep in mind. I'm going to announce next episode. And it kind of links back to Censor. Uh, when I talked about that movie earlier in this episode and whatnot. Um, so the next episode that I'm doing from 1974, it's a grindhouse flick based on the real life story of serial killer Ed Gein. And no, I'm not talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre either, starring Robert Blossom as Ezra Cobb in a film written and directed by Alan Ormsby. Pretty Sally Mae died a very unnatural death, but the worst hasn't happened to her yet. Yep, from 1974, next episode will be Deranged. Uh, Confessions of a Necrophile is what it's also known as, uh, because it was brought up in Censor, and I was like, that's a good movie, actually. Um... It's definitely talk-worthy. So, next episode will be deranged. I know, I've talked a lot this episode. This episode is a little bit longer than I would have liked, but hey, there was a lot to talk about, especially that opening uh, segment where I was talking about different movies, Fangoria, Chainsaw Awards, and all sorts of good stuff. I know, I know, I can hear him. He's, he's in the fucking corner over there. He just wants to spit at me, so I'm just going to let him go. You need to shut the fuck up! Don't you people ever shut the fuck up.